Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And we're here to discuss the 2005 Young Avengers run. Excelsior. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a few weeks. How are y'all doing? I don't think they can answer you as much as some of them might want to. Oh, that's no fun. Maybe they can reach through the computers or recording and just be like, tell me about this book. That sounds like a dangerous technology that I think I'm happy people don't actually have. Yeah, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that's some poltergeist-level shit. I do (laughs) not want that. Welcome to episode 50 of Make Mine Multiversity. It's been 50 episodes since we launched. Think back in 2017. Jake and I were both not here. I think I was with the site at that point, but I was not with the podcast. Yeah, I think I was with the site. I think I, we were just starting out. We started at the same time, you and I, right? More or um, less? Relatively, because I started with Kate and Frida. The first issue I remember reviewing for the site was the first issue of that very sad run of She-Hulk. So if we can, the Tamaki run. So if we can figure out when that came out, that's when I uh, started. Oh, I forgot about sad She-Hulk. That was just called Hulk. That was after Secret Empire then. Yeah, so when did Secret Empire end? I'm bad at dates. I don't know. I never read it. 2016. (laughs) December 28th, 2016. There you go. I started in December 2016, so like a month before you, I guess. But it doesn't matter because we're not talking about 2016 and we're not talking about 2017. We are talking about 2005. Jesus, 2005. That's 15 years ago. This book is 15 years old. And in many ways, it feels like it's 15 years old, which is one of the things I'm excited to talk about. This book is a Zoomer, and it does not feel like it. Is it a Zoomer? I feel like it's staunchly a millennial. Oh, like because it is a Zoomer in terms of age. It's just, um, yes. it came out during <laughs> the millennial years. It just has such a hello fellow mm-hmm. kids energy. Oh my god, it does. But yeah, so we're talking about the Young Avengers. We're talking about the original Young Avengers. The ones that were created by Alan Heinberg and Jim Chung. Came out in 2005. Heinberg and Chung wrote uh, 12 issues of the series, which we read uh, all of, plus an annual. Is that correct? Or a special? There was a special. I didn't read the special. Were we supposed to read the special? I read it. It's in the center of my trade. It's between, like, issues eight and nine. I have it in paperback. Oh, that's weird. I bought it. This is the ultimate collection that I bought when I was working at Midtown Comics in, like, 2012-ish or thereabouts. Did the special add much to the run? The cool part about the special is it features a lot of different artists who were working for Marvel at the time. You got, like, who's in there? You got Michael Gatos, Neil Adams, Gene Ha, Jay Lee, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Pascal Ferry. Do the art. They all do like a couple of pages and then they swap. Mm-hmm. And like when Michael Gatos comes out, you're, it's like a Jessica Jones page, and you're like, oh yeah, this guy. There's a thing he does. He does it very well, and he's doing it here, and that's great. But you know, it doesn't. Um, I actually don't like uh, what it adds to the story. I, I oh. think it's. I prefer it's without the the series without. Then it's a good thing I did not read it, so we won't discuss it. I'm gonna mention just a little bit because there's one thing I think is pretty important to mention. Um, but you'll be surprised. And repulsed. When we get there, you'll you'll let me know. Yeah. So after completing the, these 12 issues of Young Avengers, Heinberg and Chung took a while off until they came back with another Young Avengers story that they did together called The Children's Crusade, about two of the Young Avengers, uh, Wiccan and Speed, looking for their lost mother, the seeds for which is, are planted in this story. After that, the Young Avengers was sort of revamped with a slightly altered roster and a very different style by Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey, and the rest of their colleagues who they would go on to do Wicked and Divine with and in many ways that young avengers series is like a um like a precursor a rehearsal like a a practice run for wicked and divine a lot of the same themes ideas images really cool to see the through line through their work but that it completely it feels like a completely different series than what we read today and it also 
it feels like it almost completely overshadowed this one because I didn't even realize that this was the initial young. I mean, I kind of knew this was the initial Young Avengers series, but the Karen Gillan, Jamie McKelvey, Matt Wilson, Clayton Cowles run. Stephanie Hans had some interiors in that too. A uh, bunch of artists uh, do the, la- the. There's the New Year special as the final two issues, and they are so cool. Yeah, so that that kind of overshadowed it for me. Maybe also because I was coming off of Journey into Mystery. I was like, oh, this is here at the library. Pick it up off the shelf. Yeah, this this was weird to go back to. Reading it now, I got like war flashbacks to my, the first time I read Civil War. Uh, this came out uh, the year after. Or around the same time. No, this came out before. You'd be right before. Because Young Avengers and Runaways crossed over during Civil War, and that was after this. I think Heinberg wrote that one, but Chung didn't draw it. That's the one, the Winter Soldier Christmas one? I remember that issue very well. That was a good issue, actually. I remember liking that issue. Maybe? That was one of the ones I either read or (laughs) do not remember. I don't remember a lot of Civil War. The Young Avengers meet uh, Bucky during um, Civil War, and they're, they're the few characters who know that he's alive at that point in continuity. And uh, they go in like a cool team up with him at Christmas time, and he's really lonely, and they're really nice. It's a, uh, <laughs> it was like a good little story. I remember it was one of my favorite parts of Civil War uh, when it came out. Uh, Bucky, he's always such a sad sack. That's why you love him. That's why we love him. So in addition to Heinberg and Chung, who are credited as the creators of this and are the uh, Heinberg is the writer, Chung is the penciler, we got a slew of inkers who do these issues, including John Dell, Mark Morales, Drew Garacci, Garassi, Dave Maikis, Jay Listing, Jim Chung does some of his own inks, evidently, according to these credits, uh, Rob Stull, Dexter Vines, Livesey, Matt Ryan, and Jamie Mendoza, and Drew Hennessy all do inks. And you know what they say? There's that old saying, Elias, the more inkers, the better the book. That is what they say. That's why I can't think of a book that has way too many inkers. Uh, every Marvel comic in the 90s. Uh, if you're new to <laughs> comics or to our level of sarcasm, yeah, a lot of inkers is usually not a good sign of the quality of a book. When there's a lot of inkers on a book, that meant that there was something going on behind the scenes. Uh, typically, I don't want to say this happens all the time, that uh, was making it the inking job difficult. Maybe pages weren't coming in on time, or maybe uh, the inkers were being spread too thin. But whatever drama was happening backstage usually doesn't lead to the best product at the front. Except Immortal Hulk, because that shit needs all that ink. Well, yeah, in that case, you gotta imagine there's so many inkers because each of them are inking every panel simultaneously because of how much ink has to go into a panel. In addition to all those inkers, we got one colorist, Justin Ponzor. Elias, I believe you're a big Justin Ponzor fan, am I right? I am. Well, more more specifically, I wanted to mention him because he lost his life last year. He died in, with a... I think it was... It's cancer. I don't know what type of cancer. He was in the hospital, and he was still doing pages in the hospital, which, God bless him, but the fact that he had to be doing that to pay medical bills is unconscionable, and Marvel should have health care for their employees. Hashtag pay your employees, damn it. Yeah, give them... If the government's not giving benefits to people, it sure be nice if companies uh, showed a little compassion, but... Yeah. Come on, Disney. Come on, Warner Brothers. Come on, AT&T. Well, yeah, Disney strapped for cash. They're paying all those inkers. <laughs> yeah. So this, this I believe, is Justin Ponsor's first ever book. Is that true? I believe so. I'm just going to quickly double-check that. If not the first, then definitely very early in his career. No, this was his first Marvel comic. He was he was uh, at CrossGen before this. Wow. Uh, and Wildstorm. Despite the fact that I'm uh, sounding a, a little bit, what's the word, ominous, and despite the fact that I'm saying ominous things, uh, there's a lot about this book I really like, and when it came out, it was a super important book to me. 
and one thing that I love almost more than anything else is Ponzer's colors. The colors in this book, the shadows are moody, and uh, he does great things with lighting. It's really vibrant, and it pops when it needs to. Um, I think Ponzer has a lot of fun. He does. I just wish I liked it better. But we'll get into that in a minute. And we have to credit, we did not mention the letterer, and <laughs> lettering is another thing I know you're very passionate about. And this uh, comic was mm-hmm. lettered by VC's Corey Petit. That it was. Corey Petit does a lot of good work at Marvel. He does a lot of good work in general. He's one of those names where you, if you're looking through a comic, you'll probably hit upon him, and it's always he always does a pretty good job. Well, he always does a, he does minimum a pretty good job, and then every so often he's asked to do something spectacular, and he he never disappoints. I feel like Corey Petit's one of those guys. He's like a journeyman, like a really talented studio musician. Yeah. Whatever you ask of him, he can play anything. And usually he's asked to do do backup stuff and not take the center stage. But then if you say we need something crazy, Petit's not going to let you down. Yeah. And we did miss one person. We missed the penciler who did issues seven and eight, uh, Andrea DeVidio. Drew Hennessy inked Andrea. All the other inkers were with Jim Chung. Oh, uh, you're right. The, the way I see in your notes that you wrote that very clearly in my uh, trade, the way they have it written is very Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Often trades are just like, here's a bunch of names. And either they divide it up by issue or they're just like, here it is by role. Everyone's like, well, who did what and when? And it's hard to tell. So I know, Elias, you're going to want to get into like, who are the characters? What is the story? How did the art strike you? Like, And I'm excited to talk about those. I am genuinely excited. But I have two things I wanted to bring to the table first. Mm-hmm. The first was yes or no question, no weaseling out. Did you like this book? Uh, on the whole, yes. That's cool. I thought that you were going to say no. I'm a little stoked. I like this book, too. I like it quite a bit. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot that has going for it. Definitely think it's got its issues, and I, I, I'll get into that. And it's more, more on the writing side than on the art side. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about who Heinberg is and um, what his deal is as a writer in a moment. But the second question I wanted to ask you is, uh, so if I, if I understand correctly, this was your first time reading these particular 12 issues, right? Correct. This is the first time reading them. As we brought up last episode, this is the first time I've read early Kate Bishop. I believe this is her debut as a character. Uh, that is correct. And you're a big Kate fan, I know. She's, you said she was one of your favorite Marvel characters. She is. Really like Kate. She's underutilized here. Yeah, we're going to talk about Kate, especially something that you don't know about because you didn't read the special. Ah, shit. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, you're going to be happy you didn't read it. You'll, you, you can pretend it never happened in continuity because Marvel sure does. Oh, good. They do that a lot. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, it's a thing that happens. My other, but so just, uh, how did you, do you remember how you first encountered the Young Avengers? Because, um, I want to talk about my first encounter a little bit, but I want to hear from you. The team? The team, the characters, like, where did you first meet these guys? So I first met the Young Avengers when, like I said, when I was at undergrad, I would take, if not weekly, then like every other week or every month, a trip to the local library. Technically, they probably weren't supposed to give me a card, but they did, and they gave it to me on a one-year rotating basis, which, uh, thank you very much, Baltimore County Public Library System. You guys made my time at undergrad much, much nicer because I could check out 50 books at a time, just stack them on my windowsill and read through them at my leisure and bring them back anytime I uh, could travel across town. So I mostly was just browsing, and I had previously read some Wicked and the Divine, and saw Karen Gillan's name on it, and, you know, Jamie McKelvey, and it looked kind of interesting, and I'd seen it kind of talked about, and I didn't really want to pick it up. And then I read Journey into Mystery, and I'm like, well, now I need to pick it up, because Loki's in it, and I need to see what the hell is going on with that. So I did. Also, the title, Style Over Substance, 
that's such a great title, <laughs> and I needed to know why it was called that. I also needed to know why the third volume was called Mic Drop at the End of the Universe. There's so many Marvel comics that have such similar-sounding titles. Just like, uh, you know, like the one-word title like Home or Sacrifice or something stupid oh, like that. So, such garbage titles. Uh, yeah, and then uh, it's the strength of, a, of really coming out for the title. Uh, that's an important part, of, just like the covers are important. Titles are important, too. That's basically my first encounter with Young Avengers. And then when you when we kind of started talking about when Empire started becoming important, you were like, we should check out the original Young Avengers. I'm like, okay, sure, why not? I've never read it. Part of, And part of my, uh, my interest in this series is, so as we were talking about in our previous episode, I was very into Marvel books when I was a kid, but then I took a long hiatus from the late 90s until about... 2007 when my buddy got me back into Ultimate Spider-Man by accident and then I got and then I went on a crazy deep dive I was like what's happening with X-Men what's happening in um, Spider-Man as I was learning about new books I learned about the Runaways as I was getting back into comics Brian K. Vaughn was finishing up uh, Why the Last Man which um, was my it remains one of my all-time favorite comics so I read Runaways and if you recall Runaways crossover with Young Avengers during Civil War and I was so into Runaways that I read that, and I was like, I hate this crossover. Maybe it's because oh, I don't no. understand who the Young Avengers are. So I went back and I read The Run. And Runaways and Young Avengers are so singular because before these books came out, you know, with some exception over the years, Marvel generally didn't have a lot in the way of sidekicks or superpowered kid characters. Like, Spider-Man was kind of their superpowered kid character, and Spider-Man was, like, perpetually a 25-year-old. <laughs> Right. Um, And like, I'm trying, I'm really racking my brain. The X-Men have younger characters because they're a school and Kitty Pride, Shadow Cat, was kind of like a young sidekick to Wolverine and the other. But like, can you think of a lot of sidekicks for Rick Jones? We talked about extensively in our Kree Scroll War episode. But yeah, Marvel doesn't have a lot of kids and doesn't have a lot of sidekicks, right? No, at, at least not outside the X-Men. And not historically, because now you're seeing a lot more. Now you've got Miles Morales as a legacy character. He's he's also Spider-Man. And same with Kamala Khan as Ms. Marvel. That starts with Young Avengers and Runaways. And the younger Marvel Universe looked really different from the older. They were um, gayer, which was a huge deal in 2005. There was not a lot of compassionate starring roles given to any sorts of queer characters. And like... In the same way that certain books get coded as or get a reputation for being like really cool and progressively queer in exciting ways now, this was the cutting edge at the time. This was the bestest, gayest book you could read, and if you wanted to see your comics get gayer, you were reading this book and you were really excited about it. That, I think, is the context to which I and a lot of people arrived at Young Avengers is it had the reputation for being the cool young gay book. I think given looking reading it today, 15 years later, that is hilarious that it had that reputation. Yeah, I didn't even know it had that reputation. I only knew it had that reputation because the version of The Young Adventures I read had that reputation. And I feel like maybe not necessarily that it did it better, but it felt maybe it's just because it's closer to our time. This This, when I got to the end, I was like, this is... I have no no idea where I'm going with this, other than when I read it, I it did not strike me as being very inclusive. Yeah. Or even very, what's the word for it? Not open. Textual. It's a lot of Im- implications, a lot of, like, sidelong glances, none of the characters just being... I get what you were saying. I'm of the opinion, I know there's a lot of people who like the Ch- uh, the Heinberg Chung Young Avengers uh, a lot better than the uh, Gillen McKelvey Young Avengers, and I am not one of them. The Gillen McKelvey Young Avengers is a masterpiece, 
and this is like a really important for its time book that I think was a milestone for a lot of people in a lot of ways. I don't think the craft is in the shadow of the later run of Young Avengers. Mm. But let's get to talking to specific. I think that that historical context is really important. So do you want to start with the characters or the creators? Let's start with the creators. And quickly, I know what I was trying to find with the characters. It's no surprise that Wiccan and Hulkling are a couple, but I don't think they kiss. I don't don't think they're like visibly romantically together, even though they are supposed to be. In the book. I'm flipping through. I'm seeing them injured and cradling each other and, like, arm around each other's shoulders. That's pretty standard, like... Subtext stuff that you see in a... Subtext stuff, but also just pretty standard superhero stuff, especially with teens. Well, that's what I mean. Like, in a lot of X-Men stuff, there's a lot of things that people have read as queer over the years because uh, characters are very physically affectionate. And even outwardly romantic towards each other but because it's never consummated in an explicit confirmation of their romance or like a kiss or something or i guess a sex scene if it's that kind of comic there's plausible deniability or even like a verbal confirmation of anything yeah and i think that's the sticking point for a lot of people is plausible deniability with with for example x-men in the 70s you got chris claremont chris claremont's gender and sex politics as well as his personal interests are a really fascinating topic to me suffice to say claremont it seems and he has uh, talked about this years after the fact, was interested in putting a lot of gay, specifically lesbian relationships, in his X-Men comic, but editorial basically told him that he couldn't. So he uh, had characters like Mystique and Destiny, who were very strongly subtextually suggested to be romantically involved, but not, like, uh, they, they didn't kiss and they didn't say that they were a couple. And then flash forward now to contemporary X-Men comics and they're calling each other, uh, she says, uh, I want my wife back. Mystique says, referring to Destiny. Such a great issue. Great issue, but th- that stuff couldn't have happened in the 70s. Or, I mean, obviously it could have happened, but uh, editorial wasn't allowing it to happen. So uh, a lot Claremont would do a lot of stuff subtextually. And I guess that was kind of brave and daring for the time because he was pushing against the mandate from his bosses. But now it feels like the opposite. And I think largely because of the reaction to this book, to Young Avengers, that people hope that the um, word of mouth that they can get for getting the reputation of being the newest bestest gayest book will get them word of mouth and so you get all you you have a lot to gain from having that reputation and if you um walk a fine enough line right you could keep it all in subtext and then never actually have to follow through on that and you can continue to marginalize gay characters that being said i don't think that's going on in here because even though they i I still haven't found a page where they kiss they definitely say that they're each other's boyfriends and they say that they love each other like they're definitely a couple and that was a big deal see at least in the in the issues because i read them singly issues through through Marvel Unlimited, I don't remember seeing any of that outside of when they visit Wiccan's parents. I think that's in the in the issues seven or eight. I just I, I just looked at that page. They uh nope they they hug his parents, but they uh... yeah. So it, it's them being together that's never really established. Although they are essentially outed to their <laughs> to the parents in there when they're trying to come out as superheroes. <laughs> Yeah, wait, wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though, because that is a scene I want to spend a long time talking about. Okay, Okay. so we're talking about the creators of this team, of this book. So the first guy we got to talk about is Alan Heinberg, who is um, the more fascinating of the two, I think, because Heinberg was not a comics guy so much before this. I I believe this was his first comic. Either it was his first comic or, like, second or third after doing, like, one or two issues at DC or something. Yeah, I, I just remember the timeline. He definitely did some DC stuff. I believe it was after, but maybe it was like immediately before. So Heinberg is mostly a movie and TV guy. When, if you didn't know the kind of movie and TV shows he wrote before this, it like, it makes so much sense, right? Mm-hmm. 
stuff like Gilmore Girls and The O.C., which is where I know him from, um, Grey's Anatomy, Sex and the City, Party of Five, really, uh, like, soapy shows, relationshipy so- shows. He helped co-write the Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman screenplay. Right, yeah, that's where I was going with this. And then years later, after he, uh, who is, you know, Heinberg's an avowed superhero fan, he wrote the Wonder Woman movie. You know, I haven't read everything he's ever written, I haven't watched everything he's ever written, but from everything I've seen of this guy, the Wonder Woman script, I think, is his best work. I think that movie has a fantastic script. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's other credited screenwriters, including Scott Snyder. Not Scott Snyder, sorry. I like uh, the other Zack Snyder. Snyder. Yeah, Zack Snyder. At least the Scott Snyder cut of... That's the movie I want to see. Zack Snyder's a credited screenwriter. And just like there's a lot of warmth and charm in the Wonder Woman movie that definitely Snyder was not bringing. That guy is a lot of things, but uh, warm and charming is not either of them. Nope. But Heinberg is, and this book is full of warmth and charm. 100%. And doing this brief read on his Wikipedia page, Heinberg himself is gay, so it's very possible that Marvel, or very possible, it's almost definitely possible that Marvel did not want to make it more explicit visually, physically, in any sort of way in the book for whatever reason. You know, and I've researched, I've done some research on this, and I've never found an interview where anyone has said what the editorial mandate was. But from what I understand, Marvel was very keen on having young gay characters and was enthusiastic about having a gay guy writing them. Like, that much I know. They saw this as a real opportunity to perhaps be progressive, or in the very least seem progressive. Yeah. What about Jim Chung? Do we know anything about Jim Chung? Jim Chung is he's mostly a Marvel covers guy. He's done a lot of interiors, but he tends to do more covers. You out there in, in the wider world may recognize his art from Infinity, which we talked about with Kevin when we were talking about the best events of the last 10 years a few episodes ago. He also did some issues of X-Force, like fairly recent-ish X-Force stuff. He also did The Clone Conspiracy with Dan Slott, which was a Spider-Man crossover thing, and that's kind of... I don't even know how to explain it because I didn't read it because I haven't read any of Slott's Spider-Man because it spans a decade. I did read that clone conspiracy, and I do not think I could tell you what happened. The Jackal comes back, but now he's Ben Riley. We're not talking about that this week. Yeah, Spider-Man and clones, there's maybe, maybe one story that's worth reading. Anyway, he also did Scion at CrossGen. CrossGen's back. I don't know who they are. In a future episode, we'll probably actually talk about them for once. But Jim Chung, he's mostly a big Marvel dude. I read some of that Scion, the CrossGen Scion series. Oh. Don't remember a damn thing about it, but I definitely <laughs> remember that I read it. You said you have some issues with the writing, and I share that. I I have a lot of issues with the art in this. Ooh, really? Yeah. So actually, do you want to start there? You want to start with our issues with the writing and art, respectively, and then we'll get hopefully more warm as we go through this? Warm, echoing Heinberg's wonderful tone and style? Yeah, let's do it. Why don't you kick us off with that? I remembered having issues with Chung's art from having read this. I read this, I've read this periodically over the years, but not for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, I, what generally I remembered feeling was that Chung has a bad case of same face. Everyone's got the same button nose oh my God. and the same jaw shape, right? Yeah. I'm looking at a panel. It's from issue four, page six. And it's Iron Lad, Cassie Lang, Hulkling, and Wiccan all in, in a row just staring at us. <laughs> the exact same face. The exact same expression on all four of them. It's worse the farther you pull back. So that means I find that with comic artists who struggle with faces, that's not a deal breaker in superhero comics because a lot of characters wear masks. And when your face is a colorful cartoon mask, it's like, you know, it's easier to distinguish them. But when he's drawing civilian faces, everyone's got the same face with like the different wig on it looks like. Yeah, he's gotten better. Chung has gotten a lot better. I His feel- work in Infinity absolutely loved it. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I agree that I, I love his cover work. I think he's done some fabulous covers. But my bigger issue with the art in this, I want to put this delicately, but I'm not going to succeed, is some creepy sex stuff. Yeah. Specifically, one of the members of the Young Avengers is a girl named Stature. And Stature, great superhero name, has size-changing powers. She is the daughter of Scott Lang, who is Ant-Man, as portrayed by Paul Rudd in the movies. In fact, Stature is the only member of the Young Avengers who's appeared in the in the MCU to date. She's, oh, shit, you're right. Right? Little Cassie. She was a, she was uh, Scott's daughter in Ant-Man and Ant-Man 2, and then she grows up to be a teen during the events of Avengers Endgame. Oh, yeah. By the way, I think Stature's a stupid name. You think Stature's a stupid name? I think it's a dope name. I think Stature's a stupid name but i I had to get that out now you did i'm flabbergasted stature is such a good name she's tall it makes so much sense and she's like confident right she's got the stature to i guess i think it's way better a lot of these names not so good stature top of the heap for me Eh, i can take it or leave it i mean none of the other names that they try to give her are any better ant girl uh patriot is also patriot totally solid code name for that character yes Everyone else lacking in, in the codename department. Thatcher changes sizes a lot, and Chung has a lot of fun drawing her clothes doing different things. And I'm like, dude, this is like a 15-year-old girl, and I'm not enjoying this, and you shouldn't be enjoying this either. My comment on that was going to be, I appreciate how they actually had her wearing her costume underneath whatever her civilian clothes were. So that anytime they did play with, you know, her getting angry and getting bigger as, as that happened, it wasn't really, really, really creepy. Because she'd just be wearing the costume that she'd be wearing anyway. But, like, looking at the way he actually draws the clothes, it is very weird. I appreciate that because otherwise you would be having... There was some other book where, you know, every other page the person would, you know, you rip the clothes and strategic ripping i assure you you're misremembering there is one early occasion where she does not have a costume yet and she was uh, that was that the first time yeah the first time she gets really big yeah the first time is yeah comic artists in the world if you are writing a book about teen characters i should not know what their underwear looks like yeah that's just like not a thing i'm interested in knowing and yeah unless they're like out just shopping for like a bag (laughs) of hanes i get that there's a whole genre of like sexy teens who are uh you know like riverdale or whatever and we're used to having them played by 28 year olds yeah but it feels different than a comic and this is also this didn't feel like a story about teens exploring their sexuality that felt like weird superhero fetish stuff that Chris Claremont would do in the 70s and could get away with because they were adults and it was the 70s. But the closer you get to the present day and the younger you make the characters, the worse a look that is. And uh, just that is the part that unequivocally has aged the worst for me. True. And it was not, it's not the Chung issues that I was actually referring to. It's issues seven and eight with Andrea DeVidio. Yes, that, that is also a problem there. I guess a convention of the time, but um, real bad one. Glad we do less of that. Well, sort of. I, yeah, I guess they... uh, show me the receipts on uh, whether or not we do less of it. But it sure feels like uh, people have more sense of how we treat the teen characters. You know, this show would never happen to Kamala Khan. No, God, no. Creators have too much respect for her. Well, that's the thing is you should, if you're writing a story about triumphant superhero kids that we're supposed to be rooting for, you should respect them. If you can't respect them, how are you respect, how are your readers supposed to? It's true. My thing. But what you tell me about uh, your experiences with Heinberg here. So my big issue with his writing here, it has more to do with the way he paces out the events. Very decompressed, right? Yeah. The first six issues are very decompressed. And it feels like there's a lot more character work to be done, especially when we get past the first arc. Because he does a really good job of balancing out the character stuff and and kind of the, the interactions and the more superheroic, you know, bullshit 
I also I don't particularly love the way he writes the adult hero. I mean, and like the, the kids have a bit of a how do you do fellow children vibe to their dialogue, especially Wiccan. Especially Wiccan. That's true. I don't know what it is about Wiccan, but he feels I don't want to say empty because he's not. But whenever he's speaking, it doesn't feel like Wiccan is speaking. It feels like Heinberg is speaking through Wiccan. I. N- I think I know what you're talking about. He definitely doesn't seem like a very passionate character. Like, he expresses yeah. a lot of feelings, but it always falls flat. There's something about yeah. the writing that's not capturing the inner world of this character. He can say he's feeling away, but it seems empty. Hollow is yeah. the word I'm looking for. He does a better job with the other characters. Patriot, in particular, I think he nails. I think he gets Patriot done really well. Well, we'll talk about my feelings on Patriot in a second. But Ooh. I think, just responding to your more general um, concerns about Heinberg's writing, I also wonder how much of that has to do with the, those kinds of shows we were talking about from this era, right? These characters do talk like the O.C., and if you ever go back and watch Dawson Creek today, you can't believe that this was the most popular show. It seems like it's from a different universe. Yeah. Like Aliens wrote this show. It's like, it's so far removed from our current experience. So I think that's a little bit of how we were writing the kids here. We've also been, so we've been mentioning all the Young Avengers. Do you want to, let's do like a breakdown. Who are the Young Avengers? So the Young Avengers, We first we've got Patriot, whose real name, I should have been more prepared with this. It's Eli Bradley, I can tell you their names. Thank you, Eli Bradley, who is the grandson of the original Captain America, who debuted in, I think it's called Red, White, and Blue. Red, White, and Black. Red, White, and Black. The Truth, which was a story that essentially was saying, sure, we all know the story of Captain America, just like we know the story of World War II, but what they never talk about, also like with World War II, are all of the African-American soldiers who served, as well as all the, you know, the government tendency to, well, basically test shit on African Americans. Right, specifically uh, inspired by the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah. uh, Red, white, and black. And it's revealed that before Steve Rogers was given the super soldier serum, the government used a bunch of test subjects to see if it was safe, and it wasn't, and a lot of those subjects died, and the test subjects were all black because black lives did not matter to those people in that story. Isaiah Bradley is the surviving is the survivor. He survives and he has Captain America powers, so they give it to a blonde guy, Steve Rogers. And Isaiah just gets to continue being. So Eli is his, his grandson. Eli Bradley has a bit of a chip on his shoulder because of that, but more specifically, he, like all of the young Avengers, they want to be superheroes, so he models himself after his grandfather. Did Steve Rogers ha- take on the name Patriot before this, or did he take it on later? I don't remember Steve Rogers ever calling himself Patriot. I remember him being Nomad, and I remember him being oh, the captain. He was Nomad. I got it wrong. I, yeah, Eli's always been Patriot. I'm sure someone else has used that name in Marvel, but that's like, that's like Eli's name, and he's got the best code name. And I also, now that we're talking, I really liked Patriot, the stuff with him and his grandfather. That's the strongest work he gets in this book. Just like, that was a recent character introduced to continuity. It's like a cool connection, and I love legacy stuff. I love it when uh, there's a hero who's got a connection to an older hero, and just the difficulty in reconciling that. Good stuff. We have Patriot, and then we have the person that I've been calling Wiccan this entire time, Asgardian. Yeah, he's briefly called Asgardian at the beginning of this. There is a really just, like, I could not believe it, I was scandalized joke, where, um... It's Cassie or Kate says, well, you should call yourself Wiccan. And he's like, what's wrong with Asgardian? And he's like, she's like, well, first of all, you're not Asgardian. And second of all, think of how that name is going to play once the press gets wind of you and Hulkling. And I was just like, is the punchline of this joke Asgardian? That's racy. I think that's what it was. I just can't believe there was an Asgardian joke in Young Avengers in 2005. It's the only way you could sneak it in. I don't know why you need to sneak it in at all. <laughs> I don't know. It's 2005. It's 2005. Yeah, I can't tell if I'm impressed with the audacity of that joke or just, like, really scandalized. 
I'm sure you'll have plenty of time to, to really marinate on the joke. We'll bring it up next time. It'll be our greatest running gag. It'll be episode 1000, and we'll still be referencing the Asgardian. Oh, God. I sincerely hope that. But at that point, they will have an actual hero, and all he does is stand in front of a donkey. Regard- <laughs> Regardless, uh, he is not Asgardian. He becomes Wiccan, and Wiccan's deal is... It's, well, he's magically... We got, have no idea. Well, he's got wishing magic. The the answer as of this story is, we don't really know he has magic powers. He, well, he's got magic powers, and by the end of the uh, story, he meets his brother. Oh, shit, yeah. So his brother's name, I don't know what his non-code name is, but his code name is Speed. And uh, his name is uh, Tommy. Ah. Tommy Shepard. He's basically modern Quicksilver. He's got Quicksilver's powers, he's got Quicksilver's personality, although he doesn't get slapped around as much as Quicksilver did. And he's even got the white hair and bad attitude, just like a real mini Quicksilver. And by the end of the story, Wiccan realizes that he and Speed, well, maybe the worst code name? <laughs> oh, yeah. Is it Speed? Um, oh, yeah. Wiccan later, I remember in Al Ewing's, I believe it was the U.S. Avengers was the part of the run where they discussed this, Wiccan gets called out by someone for not being a Wiccan and for being appropriative. And I was like, that's true. And that's like not even the beginning of Wiccan's problems. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't need to. Although um, Kieran Gillen gave in that Young Avengers run, by the end of it, they were calling him the Demiurge, which I think is sweet. That's a cool name. But that didn't stick. I mean, like, they, they still call him the Demiurge, but that's not like his code name. No, Wiccan is still his code name, but the Demiurge is like his title, I guess. Wiccan the Demiurge. I don't know. When you say it all like that, it sounds kind of cool. But he realizes that he and Speed, our uh, brothers, are twins. Thus, because they're twins, they really resemble the powers of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. There, there's clearly a connection there to be explored in later books. We'll kind of touch on that in a minute. But first, let's get through the rest of the Young Avengers. So then we have Hulkling, who at the beginning looks basically just like the Hulk. And I guess the question is, what's his deal? Well, the answer to his deal is he's a shapeshifter, as you do, but specifically, he is a scroll shapeshifter. And more more specifically, he is half scroll, half Cree, which plays into the entirety of the last arc of this book, which is kind of basically all about airing all the characters as secrets. Now I think yeah, which it. is a great premise for a second arc of a superhero series. I, just as long as we're stuck on this codename thing, I always was like, yeah, he's Hulkling. That's like a little Hulk boy. I did not remember that it's because he's a Hulk who is also a changeling, and I was like, no, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that it's... I, I didn't even know, and then I saw that explanation, and I was like, that's bad. That's stupid. That is something that, like, a teen would probably be like, this is this makes total sense, but it's still really stupid. <laughs> uh, all that being said, I actually really like a lot of things about Hulkling. I think Hulkling has the best visual design in the bunch. The fact that he's big and green is cool, but then when you see him revert into his more human-looking form, just like, you see that he's this stocky dude. Hulkling is thick, is what I'm trying to say. And I like thick Hulkling. I think it's cool that he's, like, a bigger guy. It's, like, not a body type you often see yeah. in uh, in young characters. I guess you see it in, like, big soldier characters. But then that's the other fun thing is Hulkling's built like a linebacker, but he's, like, a sweet nerd. And I like the incongruity of that. And I also like uh, his m stupid mop of blonde hair that persists even when he's green. Yeah. I like the color contrast in that. And then his powers are the most visually interesting because he, like, is always growing, like, big claws or dragon wings. I just think that that always 
always looks cool. I find a lot of fighting in early 2000 superhero comics to be really boring, but Hulkling always brings a, like a nice dash of excitement and color to a superhero fight. Yeah, I gotta say the paneling in this in, in this comic is very boring, very samey. It also feels super empty. Yeah, some backgrounds are very sparse. It's got the widescreen approach, but a lot of the backgrounds are blank and boring. Justin Ponsor tries his best to make them dynamic, but when you've got nothing to work with, you got nothing to work with. Just turn to a random page where they're standing at a doorway. It's like a big circular doorway with all these rubble and wires, and it looks really busy. And then through the doorway is just white. Yeah. I don't know why you just did half a picture, man. You could have just made it a wall. You made it the same color as everything else. It's almost distracting how blank that white light is. Yeah. All right, we're going through the Young Avengers, though. So next up, we got Cassie Lang. Stature, which is stupid, your notes say. So you even thought that before I brought up how cool I think that name is. Yep. That's great. I'm glad that you have deep convictions about this. I have opposite <laughs> deep convictions. Stature is a good code name. Listeners, this is going to be the biggest, most contentious issue of our episode. Please tweet at us whether you think a stature is a good code name or a stupid code name. I expect no less than one tweet. <laughs> yeah, one tweet minimum, please. And we talked about stature a little bit. Her name is Cassie Lang. Her dad is Scott Lang, who is Ant-Man. But what they explain here, which might be unclear to people, is that the Ant-Man powers aren't genetic or anything. She's been stealing PIM particles, the molecules that uh, let you control sizes, for years from her dad, and she's finally accumulated enough of them to um, shapeshift. She can't talk to bugs because that's a special helmet. I like th- her dynamic in this, that her parents are, her, because her dad is Ant-Man, and because he, her dad recently was killed in battle, her mom and her stepdad are really opposed to her being a superhero, and that creates some of the best tension in the story. I really like all the really moody scenes where Stature is crying because her parents don't understand her. Like, that's great teenage stuff. Gotta get the angst. Yeah, but but her angst feels really earned, I think. Her parents are really terrible to her. God, yeah. But not because they don't love her, right? It's because they love her, and it's like in that great way where um, you hurt the ones you love because you're trying to protect them. Makes for good drama, I think. All the adults kind of sound the same and they're all just disapproving. It's kind of annoying. I think there's a couple adults who are well-written in this, but I want to introduce the next character because I want to ask you a question, and that is Kate Bishop, who goes by the codename of Hawkeye. In this comic, she's got a very different costume than the one uh, she becomes more famous for in the Gilla McKelvey Young Avengers and the Fraction uh, Aha. Oh, I always mess this up. In that run of Hawkeye, she gets a more modern, cool costume. Here she's got, like, a leather midriff-bearing thing with, um... A mockingbird mask. She's using all sorts of weapons, uh, not just bows. She also uses a sword, very notably in this. And despite having no powers, she's presented immediately as very formidable and rich. And when you're putting together a superhero team, you always got to have the rich person who's going to like pay for your layer and for your costumes, because otherwise that would break the suspension of disbelief. Elias, Kate Bishop mm-hmm. is one of your favorite comic book characters. This was her first appearance. How do you feel about that? That's crazy. I was going to say, is there a question in that? Oh, I was. Uh, <laughs> I thought you'd be bursting at the seams to uh, just like gush about your Kate feelings. This feels very different than what Kate ends up being, right? It is. And I found that really interesting, actually. Yeah, why? She isn't who she becomes. And it's also not the, the beginning I thought it would be. I'm still figuring out whether or not I enjoyed... Well, I definitely enjoyed like her intro, basically. But like, part of my problem is just the decompression. I don't think this series spends enough time with its characters. And that I'm sure I'm sure either you or others will disagree, but I don't think 12 issues was enough. This was definitely the first 12 issues I reached the end. I'm like, this could have been six or seven. And I think it would have been a great first arc. 
maybe a little compressed for six or seven, but we're talking a lot about compression and decompression. And if uh, that's a new concept to you, decompression is the word that gets used for how superhero comics tend to be longer. Well, the longer is the wrong word, but they tend to put less information and less story in the pages. They're less dense. Less dense, yeah, than they used to be. I think it gets used very critically and very disparagingly now. But yeah. decompression first came up for a very deliberate reason, or the earliest and most game-changing example that I can think of. And that is in 2000, when Brian Michael Bendis was writing Ultimate Spider-Man, he basically said to himself, Spider-Man's origin happened in one issue of comics in the 60s. Specifically, the When Great Power Comes Great Responsibility speech, which Bendis believed was the uh, thesis statement of all of Marvel Comics, happens in one panel of that one issue. And Bendis was like, this is such an important story. I feel like there's so much more you can say about it. What if I tried to take that one issue and I decompress it into six issues? And that's the first arc of Ultimate Spider-Man. It was a very deliberate choice that he made in order to um, spend more time exploring a story that he thought deserved the time. And that's been uh, Bendis' signature style for ever since. And same thing with um, another very influential writer from the era, Jeff Johns, who uh, is probably one of the most influential creators over at DC these days. Mm -hmm. Jeff Johns is also a big fan of the decompression story that becomes the rule in superhero comics and remains the rule is that you don't tell an entire story in one issue usually you don't even tell an entire story in two issues usually you, it takes five or six stories and it's less like episodes of a tv show part of that's also they're writing for the trade because around that time bookstores started carrying collections of current comics instead of collections of older classic comics that they 100% knew had an audience and that were being really re-released for some celebration or because they were so popular and they wanted to bring it back into print. Stories started to be written for six issues because that's what bookstores, specifically Barnes & Noble, said was the perfect length for the size of the book on their shelf. Marvel and DC specifically started you know, gearing storylines and whatnot so that it would fit so you could get a complete story-ish and then you'd want to come back for the next so that you wouldn't have these awkward breaks or you wouldn't have 10 issues that started and stopped all throughout and you can see it's weird because decompression as you said was supposed to be something that let you spend more time to explore moments and, and events and it's kind of become and i think the reason why people use it so disparagingly is because a lot of times the stories don't need to be decompressed like it could be told in three or four issues, but they have to stretch it out. So they add padding, they add they add stuff, and or they take a moment and they split it up too much. This happens in, in scripts too, movie script. And there when they say whether or not you dramatize a moment, are you just showing it or are you having someone talk it out? Are you having people converse or are you kind of skipping over a scene because it's not necessary to show right and including too much can be just as bad as not including enough mm -hmm. we kind of saw that with the kree scroll war there were entire issues that were like this was fine yeah they're fighting cavemen but what does cavemen have to do with the kree scroll war but then it also led to stuff like that that amazing vision issue that i love so much where ant-man has to repair vision if it was decompressed that probably wouldn't have been included at all because you wouldn't have had to fill that issue with an adventure. Yeah. So I, that's, and that's, I guess, the reason why I generally don't like my comics to be too decompressed because I feel like you could, there's a way in which you can string your uh, series of adventures together to create an ongoing narrative and the best comics walk that line well. Each issue is an exciting self-contained story that propels the story forward. Immortal Hulk being an amazing example of a modern book that never, each issue could you could read by itself and that could be the only issue you read that would be fabulous. But if you read every issue, it's a really rich and rewarding experience. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. 
Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. All of that background being said, did you think Kate Bishop was cool from this? No. No? <laughs> what did you think then? Uh, I, I thought that the creators thought she was cool. And this is probably also the 15 years since it came out talking. Because like, I read for the first time Runaways, the Brian K. Vaughn Runaways. Oh man, I could see why people thought they were cool, but they no longer felt that way now. And that's a big problem with anything that's trying to chase whatever is cool, a modern cool. In the moment. In the moment. Because you might capture the moment, but that means you've captured the moment. All right, exactly. <laughs> I actually thought Kate was very cool. A big uh, conflict that Kate has throughout this is that uh, she's butting heads a lot with Patriot, with Eli. And mm -hmm. Patriot, because he fits the Captain America archetype, is like, I should be calling the shots, I should be the leader, but proves to be pretty incompetent at every turn. He makes a lot of bad calls, he gets hot-headed, and loses the bigger picture, and Kate is cool and focused and is constantly making the good calls. They play this as like a belligerent sexual tension thing where it's like, well, clearly they're vibing and they're interested in each other and that's why they're acting like this. But that didn't make any sense to me. It just seemed like Kate was coming in and being better at Eli than his job and Eli didn't like that. And that seemed as far... And then um, all of the, the romance angles seemed like, like you were saying, like it's telling and not showing. They didn't have any chemistry and the belligerents never felt romantic. It's not like when Han Solo and Princess Leia are having this smoldering exchange of insults it was just like literal insults i never felt like there was subtext to it yeah, yeah, yeah i didn't even pick up on that like i didn't even pick up on them having tension they were just squabbling yeah there's all there's there's whole scenes where cassie and kate are walking and uh cassie's like i can see you like him and kate's like what no well and i'm just like i don't feel this um <laughs> i would like to i mean not like to but i feel obligated that i must share with you what happens in the special now oh no all right so, Brace yourselves, people. Yeah, and I apologize, but I just think that this is like an important uh, where comics were in 2005, and I'm, I feel confident that this doesn't happen as frequently. So what, one thing that I think is cool about Kate Bishop in you know, this story of Young Avengers is that all of the other characters, or I, would, I think with no exception, are all connected in some way to another superhero. Like Eli's got his grandfather, Wiccan is implicitly uh, connected to Scarlet Witch, and you got Cassie Lang, and she's the daughter of a superhero. But Kate is not. Kate just, like, one day turns around and says, you know what, I'm good at kicking ass and saving people, saving lives. That's what I'm going to do now. I'm just good at stuff, and you should do stuff that you're good at. And I think that's cool. Wouldn't... Kieran Gillen understood that that was the appeal of her, and that's why he wrote, I believe it's the opening lines of the series, actually, where she says, being a superhero is fun, everyone should try it. Yeah, that's not the opening line. Because she opens up, she opens in bed and is like, fuck this, I'm tired. But then the next, the, the big splash page where it gets issue one, style over substance. Yeah, and then she, but the, the notion that Kate Bishop just one day said, being a superhero is great, 
and everyone should do it. And that's what Kate, I, I feel like that's the essence of Kate's character, right? Is that she just realized that it, that uh, she could have fun and that she was going to fulfill her dreams, right? She's like a go-getter and she doesn't take no for an answer. And specifically because she's saved by the Young Avengers. Well, so in this she gets, but she's not saved sort by the Young But she's not saved by the Young Avengers. She saves them. Well. They go in to, to, uh, to save the hostage situation that she's a part of and they fuck it up entirely. And she ends up uh, being the one who turns the tide in the battle mm. as a bystander. She She is the linchpin. Yeah. Um, like, if it wasn't for her, probably hostages would have died and the St. Patrick's Church on Fifth Avenue would have burned down, which is like a nice cathedral, you guys. Um, yeah. So in the special issue, uh, Kate is uh, talking to Jessica Jones about just, like, how she's feeling about being a superhero. They're having a check-in. It's nice. And Kate tells the following story. I'm reading uh, mostly from the page that I have open. This is with art by, I believe, it's hard to tell what, who does what pages, but it looks a lot like Michael Gatos, and I'm pretty confident that it's him. So in the style of the original alias Jessica Jones comics. Kate says, life is short, and she's giving uh, money to a homeless person. And it doesn't uh, matter how good your grades are or how many hours you put in at a soup kitchen. She's walking through Central Park, and there's a shadowy figure following her. You're not safe, she says, as a blonde man in a beanie seems to grab her by the neck and pull her into the tree line. Bad things happen. Things you can't control. Things that have nothing to do with you, she says. Now she's crying with tears coming down her face and screaming as she's pulled uh, into the shadows. And they will destroy you if you let them, Kate says. She's in um, her bedroom now and uh, her knees are to her chest. She looks very traumatized. Or you could try to learn from them, she says, in a therapy session, so that next time you'll be prepared. And now she's punching a punching bag. So that... even if you never feel safe again, you can do your best to make sure that what happened to you never happens to anyone else. And if you're lucky, you won't have to do it alone. And those final words are uh, her in costume as a young Avenger. But so this means that hmm. Kate's origin story is that one day she was sexually assaulted in Central Park, decided to take self-defense lessons, and then became a superhero. Which directly contrasts both with the issue and just feels skeevy. I'm sure there's a world in which comics can maturely discuss issues of sexual assault, but Mm -hmm. the amount that they try to discuss it and the amount that it is successful and mature is not the right proportion. And early 2000s comics were, like, egregiously rife with this sort of thing, where uh, sexual assault was used to build a lot of drama. It was done in a way that was very disinterested in the feelings of the women involved. I say women because men were not usually the victims. And, um, yeah, and this is done in a two-page sequence that has never been mentioned again, as far as I remember. Yeah, I don't think so. Like, it's not being done with care or with with any sort of delicacy but to me the the biggest problem of all that is that it undermines the basic appeal of the character of Kate is that being a superhero is try fun and everyone should try it that Kate is a character who didn't need an origin she just spontaneously is cool and does cool stuff trying to tie it to a lazy sexual assault story I feel like misunderstands why people like Kate yeah I don't have much to add to that <laughs> other than I'm now glad I did not read that special and yeah i like kate showing everyone else up at what was it it wasn't her wedding no she was a bridesmaid it was a friend's wedding that was what it was she was a bridesmaid i guess or cousin something like that i don't know her dad's an asshole uh yeah and her dad being an asshole and all her family just everything about kate gets amazingly explored in future stuff in west coast avengers we learn a lot about her mom there's like such cool kate stuff to come and i love the character i think she comes across cool as in this most of the time but I think there's this weird early hiccup where this poorly handled sexual assault storyline didn't go anywhere and is left forgotten. And usually, I believe that if you introduce something, you gotta address it later. 
but I'm cool if we never talk about that again. I can't think of a way in which that makes her character uh, better, or I, I, I can't think of the good story. I'm sure there's everyone, you know, there's a good version of every story out there, but I am at a loss. I think we'd probably be better off not exploring it. Yeah, that would be my personal preference as well. Uh, let's talk about Iron Lad, though. Iron Lad. I mean, what's there to talk about with Iron Lad? So he's much. Here. Iron he's Lad's so complicated. Here for one arc. He's from the future, and he's actually secretly young 2000s era sexy Kang. Yeah, he's Kang the Con. He is a young Kang the Conqueror who is a. Uh... He's also a teen, so that makes that statement very uncomfortable. But when you see adult Kang, you know why. Yeah, well, you know what I mean. Iron Lad's running around in his underwear for quite a bit of this, too, because he takes off the armor and he's wearing his little shorts, his little bike shorts. Yeah. But whatever, we're spending way too much time talking about uh, comic book teenage nudity. Iron Lad's Kang the Conqueror. Kang the Conqueror is a very classic Avengers villain. I think before the MCU and, like, a lot of mar modern Marvel stuff, Kang would have been, like, a strong contender for the most classic deadly Avengers villain, like, up there with Ultron and probably more so than Thanos. I think in 2005, if you asked, um, well, Infinity Gauntlet had happened at that point. But I think, like, in the early 2000s, if you asked an, a fan of the Avengers comic, who's the bigger threat, who's the more interesting and better villain, Kang or Thanos, everyone would have said Kang. Isn't that wild to think about? Yeah. That's very weird. Um, just like times they change. Kang is the conqueror, he's a time traveler, he's got a lot of access to, you know, he's just like your classic time travel villain. He never has to lose because if he ever loses, that was just part of his time travel scheme. He's a master of the past and the future, he's got future weapons, and he can, like, fight with medieval weapons and caveman shit. Kang's okay, probably one of my favorite appearances by him, I've never really loved Kang. If you're gonna have a time traveling warlord slash despot, you can do worse than Kang. Yeah, as a villain in this... He's got his moments, but for the most part, he just, I mean, he, he pulls, pulls a Doctor Doom. He's just the big grandstanding villain, but instead of being a ruler of a country or commanding super mystical space gems, he has a special time machine, basically. Although I do really like how he's just standing around and he's like, well, if I do nothing, everyone dies. So you gotta come with me, bro, and the young young Kang has to have his, his moral conundrum. And I appreciate that Kang isn't, like, he doesn't have this huge, great, evil plan to destroy the world and they have to stop him. It's just the way things are. And that's, that's really, I think, an interesting approach to it. That's some good time travel. Mm -hmm. Fun trivia, Kang is not his given name, is not his original name. Do you know what it is? What is it? No. Kang is Nathaniel Richards, father of Reed. What? You heard me. Kang is the father of Mr. Fantastic. I feel like I know this, but why? Uh, why is time travel? And to get more specific would be a whole different podcast. Yeah, you know, Kang's been around. Kang's and stuff. And Iron Lad is one of the versions of Kang. I like Iron Lad as a Kang version. I like that there's a young heroic version who doesn't want to grow up to be a villain. I think that's compelling conflict. I like that Iron Lad doesn't survive the issue. Or doesn't, or just by the end of the story, he has to go back to his time of the first story, so he's not really a member of the Young Avengers. But I, I like how he brings them together. I think that's, that's all good plotting, and I enjoy it. And I like later we get to spend more time with him in the very good run of Exiles by Solomon Med. Yes, that was a good run. Yeah, and uh, he, he writes a really good Young Kang, and Iron Lad, as a hero, is, like, pretty compelling, actually. Yeah. But yeah, not a lot to say about him. Oh, yes, of course. I was like, who else is in the Young Avengers? And we forgot one important member. Who could it be now? And that's the Vision. True. We should probably get into why that's important, because Vision, well, he's kind of been dead. Just like Scott Lang and Hawkeye, and the Jack of Hearts. <laughs> a very uh, popular and famous character, that Jack I know. of Hearts. Everyone, everyone loves and remembers Jack of Hearts. He's 
That's why he's been in every Avengers movie. Just never knew it. There's a bunch of comic writers from this era who love Jack of Hearts. I think J. Michael Straczynski talks about Jack of Hearts a lot. Really? Yeah, I don't know what it was. I, You know, I haven't read it, the classic Jack of Hearts stories, maybe. Maybe I'll be uh, made a believer. What you're leading to is that Young Avengers is coming right out of Brian Michael Bendis' 2004 story, Avengers Disassembled. Avengers Disassembled is definitely... It happened in 2004, but that's the real beginning of the 2000s for Marvel, I think. Yeah, and that's kind of a story that's still felt today, which is wild to think about. Yeah, in a lot of ways. It's, again, it's really representative of trends of the time that I don't like. Have you ever read Avengers Disassembled? I have not. I have read House of M, which... Is the follow-up. Kind of, sort of, followed up Avengers Disassembled. House of M is very important for current X-Men stuff, and maybe we'll talk about that at some point. Yeah. Because that's where M-Day happened. Right. Which... We'll leave that hanging. Avengers Disassembled is kind of a slog to read. I mean, the premise is, what if the Avengers had their worst day ever? It's just like a series of miserable things happening, and inexplicably. Like, Tony Stark is flying to a meeting, and he shows up drunk, but he doesn't remember having a drink. And then people start dying. Vision, it turns out, was infected by what seems to be an Ultron virus. He starts attacking. And then She-Hulk loses control, and she, like, hulks out and rips Vision in half. And Jack of Hearts shows up, and he can't control his powers, which I... You know, I uh, pride myself on knowing a lot of Marvel trivia, and I can tell you Jack of Hearts has, like, energy manipulation, but I could not tell you more specifically how or why. But he explodes, killing Scott Lang, Ant-Man, and all these miserable things happen, and nobody knows why. Uh, and, like, the Kree show up, and the Skrulls show up, and they're all fighting on the Avengers' lawn. It turns out that these things are not really happening, but that Scarlet Witch is using her magic powers to make these things happen. And this is... Not the very first example of Scarlet Witch loses her powers because she, and I'm using this word with full irony, um, goes, like, is hysterical. Yeah. Right? Where, like, Scarlet Witch is so sad by the events of the story that she, like, loses control of herself and her powers and bad stuff starts happening. Doesn't that lay the seeds for Wiccan and Speed? It does, yeah, because the thing that makes her lose her grip on reality is the joke we tell around my house when we talk about this reveal is robots can't have kids. <laughs> Robots can't have kids. She um, is married to the Vision, who is a robot. Then she gets pregnant and has kids. And in the story, everyone's like, that's weird. I didn't know that could happen, but whatever, man. You forget, they're experts on robots. Oh, we, we learned all about their experts on robots in the, in the Kree-Skrull War discussion. Yeah, it, it just the reveal in Avengers Disassembled is, really, robots can't have kids, and that Wanda conjured those kids with magic, and when she realized that, the spell was broken, and those children's souls were sent back to hell. And actually, that's all the stuff that's discussed in the West Coast Avengers, and I've read some West Coast Avengers, but sporadically, and I haven't read the story specifically here, so I'm only going by what I know from having read other comics. So, it's heavily implied, but I don't think I outright stated until later that uh, Wiccan and Speed are those two boys, the, the sons that Scarlet Witch summoned with her magic and then lost when she lost control. I think it's explicitly stated in Young Avengers. I'm pretty sure they theorize it, but it's not confirmed until the next story, oh, yeah, the Children's Crusade, when they, they meet Scarlet Witch and they, they get the whole story from her. Yeah. The Vision here is not Wiccan's potential dad. It is a, a different version of Vision. Yeah. So this Vision is the resuscitated corpse of the Vision operating system plugged into Iron Lad's super special future Space Kang armor sort of. And it's basically Iron Lad's memories merged with Visions because the whole crux of the first the first arc is, is Iron Lance trying to prevent Kang from basically being created. He wants to be a superhero and he doesn't want to become Kang. But he the vi he finds the Visions corpse basically and the Vision has I think it's called the Avengers Protocol. 
And what the Avengers Protocol basically says is they have defined the replacements, the next generation for all of the original Avengers. If the Avengers are ever disassembled, here's my list of people to find. And this idea gets used a lot, though, because Nick Fury has his Caterpillar files, which is the same deal. Like, a lot of superheroes. uh, Xavier has a list of this. A lot of superheroes have, like, their replacement backup teams. That's kind of how the Young Avengers get put together, sort of. Iron Lad basically fudges almost every single name on the list. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Which is hilarious. What I appreciate, and this is a little bit of a tangent, is that the Young Avengers team, they they homage old Avengers issues. The end of issue three homages, I think it's the end of the third issue of the Kree-Skrull War, with the sentry busting through the wall, but here it's... Not Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde's a later arc. It's uh, someone who looks like the sentry screaming about, where is the master? Where, uh, who, who is this guy? I'm trying to flip to the page specifically. It, uh, hey, the characters also are like, who is this guy? He splits into multiple people when they beat him up. In issue three? Uh, Growing Man. Oh, yeah. the Everyone's favorite villain, Growing Man. Yeah, yeah, he does look like a Kree sentry. But like that entire page, it looks, actually, I think it is composed exactly like the page from... Uh, Avengers. Oh yeah, it's not an accident. Right? No, and they they positioned everyone. At, I appreciate th- things like that. But there's Iron Lad, in all his Iron Laddie glory, or, or uh, this is Iron Lad, and then later we've got Vision, Iron Lad. Yeah, well, Vision himself is a like gestalt of a, of the personalities of a bunch of people, including Wonder Man. Oh yeah. Um, so we're just adding more minds to the mix to make different minds, which is like maybe interesting to think about or maybe not. But the point is, this is a unique version of Vision. He's less ghostly and more robot-y, if that makes any sense. Like I feel like there's a lot more of him like transforming like a transformer and less of him like floating through walls yeah and he's romantically interested in cassie iron lad or vision iron lad well both right vision is interested because iron lad was interested but i thought i thought vision iron lad i thought they had an entire conversation where he was like i know all of these things and he was interested but i don't feel any of that oh i read that as he was protesting a little too much oh Dan Slott wrote a very brief run of Avengers that I actually rather like, and the two of them are on the team Stature and Vision. Gotcha. And Vision ends up being the last member of the team. Vision, I will tell you, I've got a buddy who has a much more popular podcast than we do. We talk Marvel sometimes, and Vision is his favorite Marvel character. He talks about Vision all the time, and I was always like, I don't care about Vision. And then when we were reading Kree Scroll War, I'm like, oh, because Vision was much better in older stuff. And yeah, he actually did fun things. Yeah, and I like the old like robot Star Trek, uh, what makes a man type stuff. And here, Vision left no impression on me. I mean, he does plotty stuff, like he brings the team together. He makes the mechanics happen, which I guess is ironic, but uh, as a character didn't this vision was just like a non-entity for me he is super boring unfortunately so we've talked about which oh yeah yeah. sorry i was just i was just muttering on about how boring this vision (laughs) is unfortunately because he doesn't doesn't do shit he's around he you know messes with things but for the most part he's kind of a non-entity yeah. We said earlier we were going to talk about some of the adult characters in this, and I thought some of the adult characters were well-written. Specifically, I really like Heinberg's J. Jonah Jameson. We only get, like, three pages of him. Yeah, but regardless, just, like, Jonah gives this <laughs> no. great speech about how he was a kid during World War II and wanted to grow up to be Bucky, which the numbers don't add up anymore to that. I love No, it. they don't. I love the idea. And then Kat responds, who's Bucky? Which I think is bullshit. Bucky's pretty famous in the marvel universe well he's famous now because winter soldier made everyone interested in him so we told a lot more stories where people find out about stuff bucky did historically but i feel like for a long time you could have like feasibly not known who bucky is that would be like not knowing
knowing who the second in command of Patton's forces are. Like, you know Patton, who is number two? Do you know? No, of course I don't know. I don't know. I, but I, I, I felt my suspension of disbelief break when Cat was like, "Who's Bucky?" I'm like, "Bullshit! You would know who Bucky is. You work in newspapers. You work with Captain America." That shit's in his bio. Yeah, the newspaper thing makes it a little bit more egregious. He's sad because of that. Come on. If it was a random person on the street, I could have believed it, but that's Kat Farrell. She's not a historian. She's a, like a local New York reporter. I guess Bucky was from New York, though. So yeah, Kat, you got no legs to stand on, my dude. Kat was like, uh, was there, I guess. But I also, I like Jessica Jones in this. This was th- one of the first big appearances of Jessica Jones outside of one of her own books. Yeah. Was, was this the first time that Bendis didn't write Jessica? Probably. Because he was writing The Pulse at the time. Yeah, he wrote Alias, he wrote The Pulse, he wrote the Avenger stuff that she appeared in, and he wrote what I call Nick Fury's Secret War, because otherwise it gets very confusing. Yeah. Strange, early 2000s miniseries, and Jessica Jones is in that, and Bendis wrote it. It's interesting, because I think a lot of people create their own pet characters, and they tend to be the ones who write them a lot earlier on. You see this a lot, like... If you read Grant Morrison's X-Men, he creates all these amazing characters, and then he leaves Marvel for a while. And then, like, ten years later, all those characters come back and become huge in X-Men because the people writing it love his Morrison so much. Like Quentin Quire or Glob Herman are both Morrison creations. Glob's great, Quentin sucks. Right, I mean, Quentin sucking is amazing. <laughs> but just like uh, Grant Morrison created them and then no one was there to uh, use them, so they could have gotten forgotten, but that run was so uh, iconic. And Bendis was the only one writing Jessica Jones, and now here's Heinberg writing her in. And I, I like her role in this, and I think she's got a great voice. And you're talking about how disapproving the adults are, but Jessica Jones is the only one who doesn't seem like a straw man. Like, she really, um, she wants the kids to be safe, but she understands that kids are going to be superhero kids, and, uh, like, Captain America can't stop them by narking as hard as he can. <laughs> yeah, he's such a narc in that I genuinely did not understand, I mean... I guess because I didn't read Disassembled, didn't understand why he and like Tony and and they were just they were just like no, we're not gonna do anything with you guys. I'm like, come on, dude, you won't you won't even give Iron Lad the literal Kang from the future the time of day to be like, well, how can I train you to be an actual superhero instead of saying sorry, just shut down or I'll call your parents. Come on. Come on, man. You jo- you ran away to join the army. <laughs> I've talked a lot of shit about uh, Marvel movies, but I think the characterization of those two characters, of Iron Man and Captain America, are so strong in the movies and so youthful and so uh, simple that they really reminded us what the core of the characters were. But yeah, if you read a lot of 2000s comics, Captain America is like a narc and a dad and a square. Yeah. He stands up for what's right and what he believes in. He's still a hero and everything, but like he doesn't seem like a fun guy to hang out with. No, no. Especially not after Civil War. Can I tell you the scene with the adults that landed the weirdest to me? Go for it. Okay, so there's a scene. It's at the beginning of issue seven. It opens in Avengers Tower, and Spider-Man and Luke Cage are there, and Captain America comes in. And here's what killed me is, so I was I was reading all those comics at the time. I know what all three of those characters were up to. And Spider-Man is, like, hustling, right? Spider-Man's always, he's late to stuff, and he's making his marriage work, and he's making his multiple jobs work, and taking care of his aunt, and being a superhero. Like, Spider-Man doesn't have time for shit. And Luke Cage at this time is running a youth center and he's trying to like do his heroes for hire business and try to be a hero of the people and Captain America is dealing with the fallout of the Avengers disassembling and trying to lead the new Avengers which like isn't doesn't seem like an idea that's necessarily going to work 
And this scene opens up where the three of them, Luke Cage is drinking a cup of coffee, Spider-Man's just sitting there, and Captain America's reading a newspaper in the ugliest living room I've ever seen in the Avengers Tower. <laughs> like, whoever bought this IKEA furniture deserves to be fired. And I'm sorry if that was you, Jarvis, but, uh, like, you're really not decorating this tower. Why do they all have time to be sitting in this living room? Why are they not doing the million things they have to do, and they're just, like, talking shit about the Young Avengers? And then the scene goes into uh, Spider-Man's like, I like their new uniforms or whatever, and uh, Luke Cage says, is Patriot's mask new? The mask is new. And Spider-Man goes, you know his name? And Luke says, you think there are so many black superheroes running around that I can't remember their names? And then Captain America glowers and says, well, there's about to be one less. And I'm like, Jesus, Cap. Yeah. Just like, uh, I remember I had a good friend in college who I got into Marvel, and she thought that she would hate Captain America because he's, she's like, Captain America's a cop. And I tried to give her comics to prove that that wasn't the case, and this was one of them. And she's like, nah, man, Captain America's a cop. And I just can't believe that shit. Yeah. I read, I, yeah, I read that. I, I almost, <laughs> I wasn't really taking great notes this time, but that was one of those movies where as you were going through it, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, this was one of those real crap cap moments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that didn't land well. And there's one other scene I want to talk about how it landed for you. Okay. Without getting into and putting labels on my sexual identity, I am in a committed relationship to a cis woman, and that's just my life. And so um, I don't want to, like, make any claims of understanding or having gone through a lot of uh, quintessentially queer experiences. Mm -hmm. But the Wiccan coming out to his parents scene read so wrong to me. And that's the thing that I think is the most poorly dated. And this is actually the thing that I'm most interested in talking about in this entire comic. Uh, do you know the scene I'm talking about? The one we referenced earlier, where they're, they're trying to tell their parents about being superheroes. Yeah, so Wiccan's trying to come out as a superhero, but there's some but hijinks ensue. Hijinks! Before he can say I'm a superhero, his parents says, It's okay, honey, we know, we've always known. And his dad says, I didn't. Your mother had to tell me. And then she says, and what you have to know is we love you and we're proud of you. And we're so happy you boys found each other. And then she embraces Teddy and Billy. And then uh, Billy's dad says, welcome to the family, Ted. And shakes his hand. And I'm just like, these kids are 16. <laughs> why, are, why are the parents coming out down so hard on like, them locking it down? And I think something I remember, I mean, love to my parents who, for, I've never experienced them being... Uh, egregiously outwardly homophobic but they definitely ran into a thing in the early 2000s where i would introduce my friend and his boyfriend and they would immediately start talking about like uh, like life partner stuff because that was just like the language of how they knew to talk about gay people that they knew and they couldn't just say boyfriend they didn't know that a boy could have a boyfriend and that's what this reads like to me this reads like my parents trying to describe a gay relationship in 2005 yeah but like you said heinberg is gay and so I just, like, I wonder about how did he have an experience similar to this, and this is really true from his life, or was he writing such kitschy, pat crap because he thought that that's what would play better, and he was trying to um, to be generally appealing? I think that, I think, I'm trying to collect my thoughts on this, too, because... The, the scene reads as weird to you, right? The scene read as weird. I did, I mean, I did laugh because... Because it's warm, it's bouncy, like the Heinberg, his good qualities are here. Because it's warm, it's bouncy, and also, also there's definitely, like, you can hear the trombone going in the back. <laughs> like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> when they're trying to talk about something that is dangerous and potentially being like, hi, we're superheroes. That'll freak out parents if they 
the parents have no idea what's going on because they'll be like you're going to be fighting people with guns and bullets and powers and what the hell are you doing and like that sounds like a parent's worst nightmare if they're not like superhero parents sure i mean that's why captain america is so concerned he literally as far as he knows at this point the one time he took a kid into battle was bucky and he died in world war ii tragically yeah that would have been an interesting way to explore it but they never he never goes that route i kind of was reading that into they, it they lampshaded at not lampshaded they referenced it with jonah jameson and i guess that's meant to be the setup but i'm i've ne i never read it coming across as concern or guilt over what happened with bucky i think that was such a part of the character in this era that like anytime you read cap that's what you're assuming he's thinking about mm. it would have been nice to make it more explicit on the page that seems like the kind of amateurish mistake yeah. that a first-time comic writer might make i mean he didn't really interact with captain america very much other than he's the narc right that's his characterization not much more deep to it but going back to the scene i do think well I, i've got a, a couple different ideas one is i think he really just wanted something positive at marvel he didn't want he probably did not want to do a tragic the gay scene which is which was all over all over it. he didn't want to do like a tragic your parents disown you and they're extremely homophobic and they're cutting you off and throwing you out of the house because that was definitely the more common thing that you would see in fiction at the time right that that was the thing i just read gotham central again and that's what happens with renee montoya that's right that is her plot with her parents now she's an adult in that the story is also basically about the terrible things that happen in gotham <laughs> so it fit the tone doing that here and it fit a bunch they're religious right uh is a big part of that story yeah and they're very catholic and like that's kind of also part of her tension it's like she knows exactly how her parents will react when when she comes out and she's outed publicly in the story and it's it's kind of terrible the way it happens right it's, it's, it's a tragedy and this is not a tragedy this is a comedy yeah but it worked for that story one because i think brubaker and rucka both i think that was specifically rucka are very they're definitely rucka <laughs> yeah definitely Rucka. they're very good at that they're very good at at really getting to the emotional core of a character and and exploring it in respectful but also like really playing to the story to make it emotional without feeling like tragedy porn which really is what a lot of those narratives were at the at the time it's uh, still today there aren't in in mainstream culture you don't see you either see them like here really kitschy positive or like tragic and it's finding the full spectrum of stories that you got to look elsewhere all right now you, i'm glad you said that because this is my major sticking point of young avengers as a franchise and my interest in the characters and the property and bringing us into empire actually all right my problem was that, again, I really will have to rack my brain, but I'm almost 100% positive that Wiccan and Hulkling are the first explicitly gay couple in Marvel, uh, at least the superheroes. They're gay, they're superheroes, they're a couple, they're said to be a couple, there's a coming out scene, like, we're, it's happening, this is finally happening. And that's, like, a huge milestone for a lot of people, myself included. Like, I was really excited about that at the time, and I remember the hum and thrum of energy. And then, um, I don't want to spoil a lot of Avengers Children's Crusade, but that comic ends with the two of them, I think they're 18 at that time, and they get engaged to be married. Wow, that's fast. Yeah, they've been dating for two years, and they're, I guess... they're kids. 
High School Sweetheart. Yeah, High School Sweetheart, but it reads as really weird and false. There's not any more Young Avengers comics for a couple years until the Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey one. And if you recall in that, which and I was following that comic very closely issue to issue. In fact, I was so into that comic, I was like hanging around with Kieran Gillen at a New York Comic Con, and I accidentally photobombed him, <laughs> and my picture showed up in the back of issue number, I forget, like issue number eight, I think. There is a picture of a Wiccan cosplayer with Kieran Gillen, and I'm just in the background wearing a goofy backpack and being like, what, me? <laughs> Um, and that's my claim. That was my 15 seconds of fame. In that run, Kieran Gillen broke up Wiccan and Hulkling for like three issues. Do you remember this? Yeah. And if you were reading that comic when it... Because of Wiccan's... Well, as as you learn later, he has reality warping powers because he's Scarlet Witch's kid. So that's the conflict that he that he writes. It's really interesting. Um, Hulkling is like, well, do I really love you or did you just see a hot boy in your class and you brainwash me? Or did you just conjure me from whole cloth and I didn't exist until you imagined your ideal boyfriend? And Wiccan's like, I can't confidently answer those questions. And Hulkling's like, I don't think we can be together then. When that happened, I spoke to Karen Gillan about that at the time. He got crazy back backlash about that. People were really fired up that uh, he would dare break up the um, most prominent and one of the few gay couples in comics. They get back together by the end of the story. It was a three-issue thing, but those three months, he was really getting it, and people were so mad about it. And I didn't understand it at all. I still loved Wiccan. I still loved Hulkling. He didn't, like, kill them off or anything. And true, they weren't dating each other, but, like, if we're gonna boil it down to simple story math, that just opens them up to date new characters and more characters and to have more gay characters, right? Um, yeah. And th their relationship always has felt really static to me. They always have been presented as so perfect to counter that overwhelming feeling of tragedy in gay stories at the time that that uh, they never were allowed to have conflict. They were too sacred and they were kept in the box and you couldn't take them out to play with them. So the fact that we broke them up was like the most interesting thing that ever happened to them. And they get back together, but at least there was a conflict in their relationship and it, they had to fight for something and it meant something. And the conflict wasn't stupid. Yeah, I, I feel like did you invent me with your magic powers is a great superhero conflict. And they end up together at the end. It's okay. Like, I don't need them to be broken up or together. Just I want their story to be interesting uh, interesting and dynamic, and that was interesting and dynamic, and that's why fundamentally, even though this is not entirely what the story is about, I'm actually really into what's going on in Empire, because Hulkling is the emperor of the joined Korean scroll republics, or whatever, the, um, in... Empires. They're empires. I didn't want to say the word empire too much, but it, republic is an inaccurate word, and we don't know where Wiccan is yet. We might find out in an issue that is coming out soon, but, uh, we don't know how Wiccan feels about his new role. And this is a great conflict. What happens when your uh, loved one, when your boyfriend slash unacknowledged fiancé, I don't know if they're still technically engaged, what happens when your boyfriend takes on a job that you really disapprove of? And, like, how do you talk about that? Or does he uh, alienate his friends and go off with his boyfriend and say, actually, I support him no matter what? Like, that's a conflict again. And if you're gonna include them as a couple, that's great. But the idealized thing only works for so long before um, it, it makes them less valuable as characters because they're, they're less interesting without their conflicts. Yeah. And I'm sure it also depends on, you know, the characters and how they're set up and the story. Because this is superhero comics, it will go on and on and on. If this were something that had a beginning, middle, and an end, it's easier to have the perfect couple, especially if it's written well, because the story ends, and then that's just where they are. Right. That's just where the story ends. There's no more. You can imagine what happens next. But that's not the case with corporate superhero comics. and Or soap operas or anything like that goes on for a long time. Yeah. Although I do, I do have to say, I wish Marvel and DC would let their characters get married and have dynamic marriages and stop breaking them up. Like, 
Spider-Man was at his most interesting in the last 20 years when he was actually married to Mary Jane and an adult teacher well you say that as someone who hasn't read most of the spider-man comics that have come out in the last 20 years shut up <laughs> right you just you said earlier that you uh, didn't read the whole 10-year dan slot run so that's half of the last 20 years uh shut up um i agree with you on principle though i like uh superman and lois lane as a couple is great and them not as a couple is less interesting to me bendis has been doing such interesting things with um, I keep saying interesting. Yeah. I, I, a lot of DC... Co- the bane of the critique. A lot of DC... Uh, DC characters especially. There's a lot of DC characters that have, like, one true love, and um, I like seeing the ups and downs of their love stories. Uh, Marvel yeah. characters less frequently, but sometimes they that's the case. And Wiccan and Hulkling, um, I, they can get married, and I would love to see, the, like, a good Wiccan-Hulkling marriage story. It's, but it's not fun when, they, when they're flat, and they don't do stuff, and they don't have friends, and they don't have fights... And they don't disagree about the fundamental values about their marriage. And they don't have those conversations. Because that's what real couples do. Yeah. That's not what happened under Heinberg. And I get why he did that. But I'm happy we've moved on from that. And I don't like it. I, I just I disagree with the notion that it was better under Heinberg. And we should go back to that. I think that it's great that they started that from that place. And they've been able to move on. And I love that they're starring an Empire. That's the coolest thing to me. If one of them dies at the end of Empire... We will have a riot on our We'll hands. do a whole episode devoted to them. I told you we could fill time just talking about one book. Elias doubted me, guys. He was like, one book, maybe we should have another segment. And I was like, we are loquacious, my dude. We didn't speak this much about Kree Scroll War. Putting it out there. Yeah, I, this, this was a lot more um, modern, and we know a lot more of the context. But uh, do you have any final thoughts on... Um, let's end it this way. We both said at the top of the show that we liked Young Avengers, and I feel like we've spent most of this conversation complaining because that's kind of fun to do. But let's end on a high note and talk about why, ultimately, despite all those complaints, we liked this book so much. I, I guess I'll go first. What I liked most about Young Avengers is that it does something new with new characters. It takes a chance. It brings in some characters that might stick, some characters that might not, and puts them in you know, teen situations, I guess. It's kind of like Marvel doesn't usually do that many teens. And when they do, they tend to cancel them really fast which sucks. But with the teen books, you get to play with legacy, you get to play with new heroes, and you get to play with younger voices. And that can be a great boon because you're not tied to a character that is in real time 60 to 80 years old, and in comics time 30, 40, which, you know, the sliding time scale and all that. 40-year-old superheroes. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. So, I... And I think Heinberg does... A very good job of introducing these characters and creating a fun dynamic. It's weird because I felt like we needed more. Like when I reached the end of issue twelve, I'm like, "That's it, over." Yeah. And I know they t- they said, "Oh, we'll have we'll be come back and more." I'm like, "Yeah, but you could have done more in these issues to really be like, this is a twelve issue run." The Gillen McKelvey one is only three or four issues more, maybe. I think it's like fifteen to sixteen issues. That sounds right. Or maybe it's 18. Um, Somewhere in that range, though, in the high teens. No, 15 issues. Five issues of trade. Yeah, 15 issues. It's only three more than this. And despite their first arc description of style greater than substance, I feel like there was a lot more going on in that. And it felt more substantial. That's just because Heinberg did, I guess, such a good job of setting the characters up. He brought them in. He made the team. And I wanted to see more. I wanted to keep seeing the interactions. I wanted to get more of the the interpersonal banter and less of the superheroics even though superheroics were, were was nice i could have done with a little bit more dialogue which is 
something I very rarely say with a Marvel comic. They're often quite verbose, especially when you got Bendis on the on a book. I agree with everything you're saying, actually. I think you, you get, you're right on the money. I would just add that there was a trend of comics of this time to be very dark. I feel like I remember a lot of people getting their arms ripped off and beating people to death with their severed arms. I feel like this happened at least twice, and that's too many times. Um, <laughs> I, I don't remember the name of the book, but I, I think I, I can picture the panel. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, you Jesus. don't forget an image like that. But this book is not arms getting ripped off. This book is very warm and nice, and it's not a kid. Despite the art. Yeah, but and it's not because the art is is reminiscent of the darker comic. That's right. Well, and I but I like that. It's it, it definitely looks like it's from that era, but the niceness of it really comes through. And comics at that from this era are um are so dark, and this really feels like a response to that. And it's not a kids' book. It's not meant for younger audiences necessarily. Literally, the first line, though censored, is "Who the fuck are the Young Avengers?" This is a comic about people who like being superheroes, who like being with each other. I feel like that was something that was getting lost, and this opened this entire new world of like. Oh, I don't know if we would have gotten a Kamala Khan with the Out Young Avengers, and I don't know if we would have gotten Miles Morales in the same way, and I don't know if we would have gotten Squirrel Girl. I feel like um, there was a bunch of books that defined the early 2000s, and this book was just way too ahead of its time, and it couldn't catch up with itself. For that, it just has so much kudos for me, and I remember reading it at the time and feeling like this was from the future, and now I read it and it feels like it's from the past, but I still acknowledge that it was like ahead of its time in so many regards, and it understood the style that it was going for much better than its contemporary temporary certainly, but still a lot of books have less confidence and sense of style and momentum than Heinberg and Chung had on their first run of Young Avengers. So even though it's like awkward and embarrassing, it's awkward and embarrassing like your favorite music from when you were in high school. And you go back to it and you're like, oh my god, I hope no one holds me to the standard of the kind of person who listens to this, but like I have warm feelings for the type of person I was when I was really into uh, Dream Theater. I'm not, I mean, I'm kidding, I'm still into Dream Theater, but... um. But, you know, like, uh, whatever embarrassing heavy metal I was listening to in high school. I feel like that was a different person, and I like thinking about that person. And that's and this book makes me feel a similar way. I wonder if a person, a younger person, would be embarrassed in a different way. We should find out. But I don't have any young people. Handy. Yeah, I'd, I'd be really curious to find out what someone who really doesn't have the pseudo-nostalgia for this era of comics might have. Because I... I have the the nostalgia for that era of comics, even though I kind of also hate it, <laughs> uh, because those were the comics I was reading with my dad. Totally. That was the era. Uh, and I have fond memories of what it looked like and what it felt like to read Marvel comics from the early 2000s. Totally. Except Civil War. I reread that and it was trash. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't hold up. It wasn't even good then. I don't know why we thought it was good. I will take every opportunity to bash it. I'm sorry, Steve McNiven. Sorry to Steve McNiven. And whoever the colorist is and whoever the letterer was, Mark Millar's writing was bad. But Young Avengers was good, and we're ending on a high note. Yes, we're ending on a high note, but wait. I wanted to quickly just, because I totally forgot about this, there were two, in the issues I read, there were two backup stories. One was a preview for Nick Fury's Howling Commandos, and it looks like the most early 2000s thing you have ever read. It's written by Keith Giffen. Oh, my goodness. So it reads like something from the 80s. If you're reading on Marvel Unlimited, just read those three pages and marvel at what that book must have been like to read contemporaneously. And then the final issue ends with this backup story about the Marvel offices, like this meta, because Marvel is, Marvel exists in the Marvel universe, 
and all of the Marvel editorial and writing staff are characters in the Marvel Universe. For those who don't know, Marvel tends to take the everything is canon that we publish, which includes the people publishing, which can get weird. But there's this weird backup issue uh, by Carl Kessel, David Hahn, Pete Pantazis, and Russ Wooten, which has one of the Marvel editors be a uh, superhero that saves them from the shocker while they're publishing Young Avengers. That was not on my trade, so I did not read that. Go on Marvel Unlimited and just read the final. It's the last four pages of the final issue. It's the weirdest thing, and I don't know why it's included. <laughs> I don't know why they left it. They cut out most of the letters pages. I will be sure to check that out. For next time, though, we already know what our next book's going to be, right? Yeah. So next time, we are reading a book called Modox 11, which is by some dude... Uh, because 90% of Marvel's books now are by dudes, which sucks. The book was originally published as Modox 11. It's also called Super Villain Team-Up Modox 11. You might have more luck if you search for that that way. Uh, it's from 2007. It was so a similar era to this book. It was written by Fred Van Lenty and penciled by Francis Portella. It is irreverent and filled with weird villains. And if you haven't read it, I recommend you do before our next conversation because it's a bunch of fun. It's another book that I have not read. One of these days, I will pick a book for this book club that Jake has not read and subject him to my taste. I'm looking forward to that day. In the meantime, if people do want to find your taste, Elias, where should they look for that? You guys can find me, well, on multiversitycomics.com. I write all sorts of stuff currently still doing babylon 5 probably also still doing the question i'm not quite sure when i'm wrapping that up i've got a few more weeks on that as we a few more weeks as of whenever we're recording because time is warped and space is bendable (laughs) but you can find me on twitter at quetzal ish q u e t z l i s h i mostly just retweet my own stuff and funny memes because Twitter scares me, for being honest. I also am a contributor to Multiversity Comics. If you like my opinions or like to not like my opinions, I'll take either. You can find me writing about X-Men mostly. I also write about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I also am reviewing Star Wars Legacy, another early 2000s era comic. I am also reviewing the anime Attack on Titan, where I am deconstructing the fascist intentions of the original creator and the arguably anti-fascist intentions of the people adapting it for a TV show. It's a pretty good review series, I think. I'm proud of the work there. And if you want to say hey, I'm also on Twitter. You can find me at rambling underscore moose. Pretty friendly, I think. I like to think of myself as so. At least on Twitter. That's <laughs> at least on Twitter. I think that's that's all for us for this week, right? Uh, next time, Modox 11, guys. Don't miss it. Well, next book club. Next book club, Modox 11. In between, we've got something else, something special. And by that, I mean the next episode. And we hope to see you there. Bye.